This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, some familiar faces added to the National Flight Instructor Hall of Fame. And aircraft prices are going up. The FAA expands the use of a transponder code for gliders. And there's a new electric trainer on the horizon. Finally, we look at the accident rate with the newest null report. Ian, are you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do it. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. Turn right, heading 130, contact final 132.4. Turn right, With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. David, our guest this week, just an amazing, amazing guy. And I can't believe we haven't had him on until now, but I was excited to catch up with him. James Ketchell, he is the first person to fly around the world in a gyroplane. Ian, I'm glad you caught up with James Ketchell, and we're going to find out a little bit more about him. But I was amazed that he also scaled Mount Everest with pneumonia. Yeah, David, the guy is incredible. I mean, he's also rode across the Atlantic and cycled around most of the world. I mean, he's just an amazing guy. I can't wait to hear more about it, and especially about the gyroplane adventures, which I know you were also involved in some gyroplane uh, instruction. So I'm, yeah. I'm also anxious to find out where you are with that, Ian. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we'll get into that later. But first, the news. We want to talk first about the National Hall of Fame for Flight Instructors, two, three new, I'm sorry, three new inductees that just happened in NBAA, and they are some familiar faces. Well, everyone in aviation should probably know about John and Martha King. Congratulations to them for uh, entering the Flight Instructor Hall of Fame, which is basically administered by the National Association of Flight Instructors, and the Kings were surprised at the recently concluded NBAA base event, which was in Las Vegas, and they kept it so much of a surprise that, that uh, unfortunately, the crowd wasn't as, as thick as it could be, but it was one of the best surprises ever kept, according to the folks that we talked to. And now, uh, Ian, in your studies going way back, have you ever seen a, a John and Martha King video or online? Absolutely, of course. Yeah. You know, I didn't use them 
for my private, my, our school was 141 and they required Jeppesen. And so that's who I used. But I will say I, when I was transitioning to the G1000, I watched their entire G1000 transition course and it was, it was awesome. I learned so much from that and I felt so comfortable when I first got in the airplane with it. I just thought it was fantastic. Yeah, you know, the thing about the Kings is that you kind of feel like they're in your your living room with you or in your mm-hmm. study room with you. You know, they have the, you know, sage advice, some folksy humor, and a money-back guarantee. Yeah. So uh, it, I enjoy taking my private instruction with them as the video host. Now, I also want to mention real quick someone else that folks listening to the Hangar Talk podcast might know. Author Greg Brown from the Flying Carpet series and a longtime flight training magazine contributor was also inducted into the CFI Hall of Fame, too. Yeah, congrats to Greg. It's extremely well-deserved. Greg is a great instructor. I mean, he, he inspired a lot of students directly when he was doing some hands-on instruction. And then, you know, over many, many years contributing to flight training, he's written books. He now does photography and the podcast. And I mean, he's all over the place. Busy guy. Just a, a really nice guy, really passionate about aviation and, and bringing more people into aviation. And with Greg and the Kings, you know, they are ambassadors of aviation. They do a lot of outreach. The Kings especially do a lot of philanthropy and have scholarships. And so that helps keep the next generation of aviators on the horizon and encourages more people to get into aviation and especially especially the Kings. I mean, I just think they're so cool. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. So congrats to everybody. Hey, moving on, I want to talk about the used aircraft market. We we haven't really touched on this yet, and that's maybe because it's not necessarily news at this point, but it is something important to talk about, and that is that in case you haven't noticed, or maybe you're just getting into aviation, the prices of used aircraft have gone up substantially in the past couple of months, and now there's some more data to show exactly how much. Ian, you recently wrote a story that's going to be in an upcoming AOPA Pilot magazine that highlights some of this. We haven't seen the the lag of supply like this in about 15 years. Yeah. And, you know, I've started to get the buy, you know, buy an aircraft bug again, and it is so difficult now to find something that is affordable in my price range. I mean, I, my brother Martin saw a, a little air coupe advertised. It was a late model air coupe. It was an Alana coupe advertised for $58,000. Oh and these gosh, are fifteen dollars to $20,000 airplanes. Yeah, I know. It's just, it's just wild. And, and you, had, you highlighted several trends in this story that you're writing for the magazine. Yeah. Well, what's interesting about this one and, and what some of the experts are pointing out is that, you know, a lot of times when you look back on some of the price cycles of airplanes, you'll see like one or two market sectors sort of take off while others lag a little bit. You know, like while training is really active, the training market will be tight and prices will go up there. But maybe, you know, like Bonanzas and Cirrus and those sort of things just sort of continue ticking at their at their current rates. But their point was that everything is tight now. So you look at business jets, turboprops, you know, that Bonanza, Cirrus sort of sector down into flight training and and almost without exception, prices are up everywhere. You know, one quote stood out for me in your story, and that's that the Cessna 182, the Beechcraft Bonanza A36, the SR22 Cirrus markets, they all have fewer than 1% of the fleet currently for sale. That's amazing. That is amazing. Yeah. And, you know, it it crosses over a little bit. We were just talking about the NBAA, uh, where the Kings uh, and, and Greg Brown were honored. And thinking about this for business aircraft also, Ian, 
Pre-owned business aircraft have increased between 23, 20 and 30%. The prices have been up 20 to 30%, and the market is still seeing historically low inventory. So that is a trend that, you, that just echoes what you said. It sweeps across a bunch of the different categories of aircraft that we fly. Yeah. And if you're, you know, out there in the market and looking for something right now and thinking, well, I'm just going to hold off until, you know, prices kind of go back to the normal, <laughs> if, if there is a normal. And the experts that I talked to for the story said that it's not happening. I mean, unless there is a major economic collapse, like they mentioned, you know, sort of 2007, they just don't see it happening. And, and you know, one thing and the reason for these prices, is there's there's all sorts of things. I mean, you can't just say it's the pandemic and people flying again or something like that, because there's all sorts of different factors. Some of it's supply chain and, and labor shortages with new airplanes. And they said, even if they, you know, the manufacturers start really pumping out airplanes again, really what's going to happen is balance. And, and they don't see prices really going down anytime soon. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's unfortunate if you're not already in the market. But, uh, but if you want to get in, I don't know that waiting is necessarily going to be the best strategy. Agreed. I want to bring a couple of things up, and I want to ask your opinion about something, too. According to the International Aircraft Dealers Association, and this is like, uh, and, and I want to give credit also to AIN. This is uh, where we grabbed this from, AIN Online, that the, the, the market is in a real unusual place. you got higher prices and a dearth of inventory in the modern used business aircraft markets, and that's according to Wayne Starling, director of IADA, and he said what you just said, basically, is, which is that the next six months will continue to have increased pricing and demand for all sectors of the market, while inventory deficiencies will continue to drive higher prices. Yeah. Yep, that's right. So, well, are there any bright spots in the marketing? And you did some research for the story. Yeah, yeah. So we did talk about this a little bit. Yeah, I talked to the CEO of VRF and and kind of got his thoughts. And and I'd been poking around too. There are a few sleepers. I mean, usually there are certain airplanes that are always going to be a little higher priced. You know, when you talk about sort of performance for dollar, uh, Bonanzas are always very popular. You know, that sort of thing. Cardinals for some reason are always you know priced really quite high for sort of performance. I love the look of that Cardinal. I yeah, really see, wanted, I wanted to get one. Do. Yeah. When I first started my training, I really wanted to buy a Cardinal. So bad. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, there'd always be sort of the sleeper models. There are fewer of those now, but there are a couple that I think are worth looking into. If you really examine your mission and you say, oh, I got to have like a four-place airplane that goes 120 knots and Zyfar and everything else. If you really examine how much you fly like that, most people don't. I mean, they end up, it's like them and their buddy or them and their wife or, or husband and you know, they might go out for lunch or, you know, go to see uh, whatever, a show somewhere in another city. Really, they're flying. It's a two place, you know, a couple hundred miles. And an LSA can do that mission. And and the LSA prices are surprisingly actually kind of low, some of the used prices. And you're getting modern construction, a reliable engine, you know. So I, I think there's some value there. And with some of that newer technology, you might even get a parachute. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, the other thing is twins, you know, they've been just in the tank the past couple of years. They're actually looking a little better, but still really good value. So especially if you can take on a partner maybe to help with some of those operating expenses, you can you can find some really good deals in twins. And then one of your favorites, the Mooney, surprisingly, has not increased substantially. 
Not yet, but I think it might be on the horizon. Um, as you pointed out in another recent article, the Mooney C models, well, which is basically what I had the last time I had a Mooney, and the C slash E, actually, those are pretty good values. Even an older F model before they went to the sleeker cowling and the, the speed and uh, cowling improvements that brought the J model. But the C, E, and F models are still pretty good values, That, but they are going up now, Ian. And, and the other thing is that some of the panels are like a hodgepodge of avionics. And, you know, throwing in a new panel is going to be a substantial upgrade. Mm -hmm. And that's going to cost some money. So if you can live with what you got, maybe an older Mooney might be a good idea. But if you really want the most modern technology, I'm not sure. Yeah. Yep. That's right. Hey, let's move on. Talk about transponder codes. I know it's thrilling, but just real quick, we want to talk about gliders and transponder codes. This is something that changed a couple of years ago and is now being expanded, but the, the 1202 squat code for gliders. You know, that came into to being in 2012, and that was for VFR glider flights not in contact with ATC. You're supposed to squawk 1202. But what's different now is that folks who are flying sailplanes and in contact with ATC can also squawk 1202. So if you're flying around and you see a 1202 squawk, you'll know it's a glider, which I think can be helpful, especially for ATC, to know because they maneuver so much differently than a, than a normal powered airplane. Yeah, so that could be a good trivia question that, you know, when do you squawk 1202? There you go. When, when you're, you're in a glider. glider. That's yeah, right. There you go. I like it. <laughs> all these squawk codes we never knew about. So yeah, 1202. Love it. So gliders, you can start using it all the time, 1202, and it's, I think, going to be expected. New technology, David. We love talking about electric and a big player. looks like they're about to hop into the market. Diamond announced at NBAA an all-electric trainer. The EDA40, an electric trainer that the hope, uh, company hopes to certify in 2023. Looks like it might be coming to the market. We hope. We'll see. They unveiled the DA36E Star at the Paris Air Show. That was a, an electric hybrid platform. That was back in 2011. And, you know, they had the uh, HK36 motor on it. But this most recent announcement, it really signals that the Austrian firm will uh, electrify the four seat 180 horsepower DA40 that was introduced in 1997. And that is a slick airplane. Yeah, it's very fun. Yep. Love it. So, you know, we obviously we talk about buy a lot and some of the others. If there's a company that's going to be able to see this through, I would put my money on Diamond. I mean, they have such a long history of certifying different power plants and, you know, they're really an engineering focused company. So I, I could really see this happening. And speaking of which, you know, we were just talking about gliders mm -hmm. and isn't their background in gliders yeah yeah originally way back yep that's right yeah, so they're looking at it so they know about efficiency yeah and can maximize some of that and you know the thing that i was thinking ian is that with a long wing like on some of the glider models and i'm not sure if diamond's gonna you know go this route or not what if you had some solar cells on the top side of those wings that it would help charge or recharge the batteries you know kind of yeah. like a like a toyota prius would do when you put the brakes on yeah yeah, that's very cool. You know, the the Pipistrel does that. When you go, we'll call it downhill, so you're on final approach, power to idle, you actually will be adding power to the batteries oh, nice. through prop generation. So, yeah, it's it's pretty cool stuff. And, yeah, you know, Pipistrel was the first certified all-electric aircraft in 2020. That's yeah. right. 
Yeah, and uh, you know, certifying an EASA right now because there is a pathway to do that where there isn't here necessarily in the states. They say it's going to fly up to ninety minutes, which for a pattern flight or even a you know one out to the local area, that's plenty. You got a, an hour plus thirty minutes reserve. Oh man, that's a winner! I would love to fly that thing when it comes out. I think for flight schools, that might make a really good choice and help keep keep the cost of entry into flying down a little bit. Once you get past the purchase price, the purchase price is probably going to be in the four hundred grand range. I'm just guessing. That's what everything seems to be. Yeah. Yeah, and especially in Europe, where they talk, you know, where noise is such a concern, having these quieter power plants to be able to fly laps around a circuit. I mean, you talk about a place like Santa Monica. You know, where they're worried about lead exposure and noise and, you know, to have electric out there, that's that's a huge benefit. Yeah, I agree. I think that there's a place for the electric aircraft on the market, especially at some of these places that you just mentioned. And again, anything we can do to keep the cost of entry into flying down and get more people involved is a good thing. All right, David, so let's finish off the news. We want to dive in deep with the null report. Now, this is the yearly report that the AOPA Air Safety Institute does on GA safety. Now, it's going to be the the numbers are a couple of years old, and that's because they wait until a large proportion of the accidents the NTSB has come up with a final determination for. And then they sort of code them and dive in and, and strip stuff down so that we can understand what phase of flight what type of airplane, what type of pilot are having these accidents. So these cover the 31st annual null report cover accidents from 2019 and we'll say that the the overall trend was sort of a mixed bag the overall trend the total accidents were down in 2019 but we flew less so that factors in so basically the accident rate went up slightly and the numbers are 4.88 total accidents per 100,000 hours and fatalities were 0.88 per 100,000 hours. Mm-hmm. So, mixed bag. Yeah, although boy, I mean, you know, you look back to 2010, they were 0.99, then 1, then 0.89, you know, so they sort of and then they ticked down a little bit into 2017, 0.76 and then back up to 0.88 like you mentioned in 2019. So, it's sort of been like bouncing along the bottom there. We I think, you know, we we talked about this before we came on. There is some really interesting stuff in here. I'll just start us off, I think, by, you know, they dig into phase of flight. So day VMC, night VMC, day IMC, night IMC, or, you know, sort of visual and instrument conditions. Not surprisingly, the major number of accidents happen during day visual conditions, because that's when most people are flying, right? 82.7 of all accidents in 2019 were during day visual conditions, but only 60.9% of the fatal accidents. So you know, the most accidents, but not necessarily by proportion, the most fatal. That actually, if you look at night flying, is a much bigger issue. So only 6.6% of total accidents happen during night visual conditions, but 12.3% of the fatalities. Also, day instrument conditions, only 3.3% of all accidents happen during day instrument conditions, but 13.4% of the fatalities, showing that's a much riskier activity. That makes sense to me. To be honest with you, you know, flying at night and in instrument conditions, those are a couple of things. And what if you're flying in instrument conditions at night? So you're doubling up on the on the probability. Now, one other thing that to me was kind of interesting was um, we looked at some of the causes of accidents, too. And fuel management is still kind of up there for non-commercial fixed wing pilots. But what was surprising to me 
is that of the groups that we're talking about, commercial, private, sports, student, etc., commercial pilots had 18.8% lethality among the fuel management accidents, and private pilots had an 11.5% lethality, so less. Interesting. Well, that kind of makes sense, though. If you're working a commercial environment, theoretically, you might have a, a... a bigger airplane with more performance, more demands on you, you know, and you you might ha- you might have a schedule to meet. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. You know, among the accidents, like you're talking about with fuel management and others, the biggest category is still landing by far. Three hundred and eight of the of the total accidents, so basically a third, happened during landing. Although they're not very uh, fatal, only five fatalities. Takeoff was the second largest category, 115 accidents during takeoff. Now, this, I think, surprises a lot of people. We talk so much about landing stalls and, you know, approach stalls and that sort of, you know, base to final turn. But stalling on takeoff is, I think, uh, sort of a sleeper problem here. There were 16 fatalities during takeoff accidents. Well, you know, in some airplanes, like the Cessna 182 that we were talking about, you know, when we were talking about aircraft prices, that has some pretty tough you know, control forces on you know, on mm-hmm. the flight controls when you're taking off. And that airplane, when you trim it for landing, is, is handles differently than when you're taking off, say, in a go-around. Or say it's at instrument conditions and, you know, you're performing basically a missed approach. So I, can, I understand that, but um, nonetheless, we are trained for you know, high, high power stalls. We're supposed to get training in that. We're also supposed to get training in power off stalls. Yeah. So what do you, what do you figure on that? Yeah. I mean, I think they started to look into this a couple of years ago because we focused so much on the landing stalls. I, I think ultimately it comes down to two things. One is that a lot of pilots only train straight ahead one G stalls. So you know, you take off the power, you slow way down, you slowly add flaps, maybe you start a descent and then you pull up and it's all very controlled and okay, there's the stall and you add power. That's not the way it happens. I mean, in the real world, it's like, if you talk about that base to final turn, you're turning. Yeah, you're turning. And you're, you're supposed to, you're supposedly going down, but if yeah. you lower, if your airspeed gets too low and your, your turn is too tight. Yeah, you bring the nose up because you get distracted. It's like that. You can have an accelerated stall and it happens quickly. On takeoff, I think it's just, it's probably this mental thing of, okay, you got to clear some obstacle like a tree at the end and, you know, you're just going to pull because your brain's telling you pull when really what you should do is probably put the nose down or, have, you know, ideally you should have aborted long before. So I think that's the issue. The other thing I'll say from the report is um, weather. Weather is, man, if you have an accident due to weather, it's like, it's not good. Your day is not going to end well. Yeah, you you and I were taking a little bit of a deep dive in that, and you're right. The weather accidents are 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 lethal. Yeah, and so uh, that's something for us to really be cognizant of. Something else that you pointed out to me, Ian, and maybe you can talk a little bit more about this, but the types of accidents we looked at mechanical issues specifically power plant issues and there were were 132 power plant accidents we're talking about non-commercial fixed-wing aircraft yeah so tell us about that this shocked me i mean I, i think we know that pilot error causes most accidents right and so you know that mechanically the airplane is safer than we are as the pilot but still, I think, you know, we want to have confidence behind our engines. 
And when you talk about more than 10% of the accidents being caused by power failures, that to me is pretty significant, especially because you got to think about this in context. These are accidents. So these are cases where somebody was hurt or you know, property was seriously damaged. Not an, this not is an not, incident, but an accident. Yeah. That's at a different, ca- exactly. different category level. Yes, absolutely. Exactly. I mean, this is not the engine failed and I made it back to the runway and landed safely. This is the engine failed and I balled it up in a field or, you know, I landed on whatever in a ditch or, you know, or I hurt myself. And so not, there were nine fatal power plant related accidents. So it's not an infrequent thing. I mean, certainly by any case. So that, that actually really surprised me and, and made me kind of think twice about just sort of having you know unlimited faith in my engine well and another thing we talked about a few minutes ago was uh, the light sport aircraft market and a lot of those aircraft have that rotax engine yeah and and we've come to find that they might be a little bit more reliable than our old reliable lycoming and continentals yeah i would love to see some some hard numbers on that i don't know if they have it but that would be really fascinating to know if they really are more reliable so it, it this thing is, you know, if you're at all interested in kind of where we're trending and, and really what the causes of accidents are, the null report's just fascinating. I think to me, it's like if we made our engines safer, if we were more proficient to take off and landing, we could cut out like half the accidents just by doing those and things. And don't forget fuel management, that as well. Yeah. You know, set set a timer and you know, we've got four flight these days. We got Garmin Pilot. It has a timer, it'll tell you when to switch tanks. Just don't forget to do it, you know, and make sure make sure you leave, uh, take off with enough fuel to make it back to wherever you're going. You got it. Yep. So, David, that's actually a great segue to our guest, James Ketchell, because the first question that a lot of people ask him about flying around the world on a gyroplane is, where did you put all the fuel? I mean, these are not very big aircraft. Usually they have about a three-hour range, which at their speeds is only about 200 miles. So it is one of the many things that he had to deal with on this long journey around the world, and and we talked to him about it. So James, welcome. Thank you so much for taking the time and joining us. You are, I guess, what's best described as sort of a serial adventurer. You've, what, rode across the Atlantic alone. You've been to the top of Mount Everest. You've cycled around the world. And now you have flown around the world in a gyroplane. And so I I guess my first question is, why? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And firstly, thank you ever so much for having me. Everyone on this planet has hidden talents, has things that they're good at. There are many, many things that I am really not very good at. But I found out uh, a long time ago that actually I'm not too bad at pulling adventures together. I kind of come alive and I enjoy doing it and I love speaking about it. I do a lot of work with kids in schools and stuff. And I fell into this by accident. I never actually woke up one day and said, I'm going to be a professional adventurer or or speaker. I've always had a dream ever since I was a kid to row a boat across the Atlantic. That's the only thing I wanted to do, really. And I had a bad motorcycle accident. It put me in hospital for quite a long time. I couldn't walk. And before I had that bike accident, I'd been toying with the idea of rowing across the Atlantic, whether I could do it or not, looking at logistically how it works, the money I needed to raise. And there was, an always, there was always a reason why I would put it off. 
mostly because I was worried about what other people thought, which is just ludicrous. Now I look back, I didn't know particularly know if I could do it. And there was this, you know, sometimes you're always putting something off because you think I'll, I'll wait for the right time. It's not the right time this year. Next uh, next year, next year. And I just kept putting it off and off and off. Had the bikes accident and decided that I was going to do it because it gave me something to aim for. It took two years to do all the physio and stuff, so I needed an end goal to focus on. And I managed to do it. It took 110 days. Usually takes about 70. For, I wanted to do it with someone else, but for some reason, no one would do it with me. Yeah. So I my own. But, I mean, I could talk to you all night about rowing across the Atlantic, but that then opened up other doors of opportunity. And then off the back of that, I, I met someone who became a really good friend, actually. He was rowing the Atlantic as well. And he invited me out to climb Mount Everest afterwards. And again, I had sort of done some climbing before, but not to that level. And I didn't really know whether I could do it or not. And I thought, well, you know what? If I can row 3,000 miles across the Atlantic, why not Why not try? Why not make the effort? I realized this a while ago, and I, and I say this to kids, it's always better to have a go at something. Don't worry about the outcome than it is to not have a go at something because you're worried about whether you're going to do it or what's going to happen. And, and then I sort of, I got back from Everest and that was a really difficult trip, actually. I had a quite nasty lung infection. Um, I got to the summer, got to the top and got back down, but I then spent a, a week in hospital with pneumonia, uh, which was a bit of a problem, but luckily I was okay. And after that, I kind of just started doing it. I realized that I enjoyed doing this type of thing. And I, I used to have a real job. <laughs> and uh, I decided that I'm going to try and take something you know, these adventures and things and, and my speaking, I kind of fell into it by accident. I'm going to take it along with it and, and just see where it goes. Because all of a sudden I found something that I enjoy, makes me feel quite content. I feel quite happy. I feel like I'm achieving something. I feel like I'm doing something worthwhile. I've always like raised money for kids' charities as well. And I thought, let's just see where this goes. So I then ended up cycling around the world. And then, the, you know, I've also had a lot of things not go my way. I've been rescued twice, once in the um, Indian Ocean and once in the Atlantic Ocean. So I've had quite a lot of stuff not go my way. I can, I can tell you and I can talk to you about disappointment because I've experienced it. And so coming back to your why did you do this, it's just over a period of time, it's just become my purpose because this is what I'm about it's kind of like my identity and I've found something that I believe in and, and, and I'm passionate about it's a very long-winded answer but that's kind of how it's all happened and why I do this type of thing really <laughs> so but you were the first one to do it in a gyroplane and so obviously lots of folks have done it in in whatever anything from a skyhawk to jets and, and everything in between but so was your entrance to aviation in order to have this sort of grand adventure and, and you looked for the record that was left or had somebody nah. introduced you to it, you loved to fly and you thought, man, this would just be a, a really cool trip. Well, I'll tell you exactly how, how it all kind of came about. I've, I have had an interest in flying since I was young, but again, never thought I could do it because I always thought that flying was really for people who had a whole lot of money and were very intelligent. I didn't think I was smart enough to learn how to fly. And I, I, I yeah, sort of thought I would fall short of the criteria when I was younger. But then I'd managed to achieve these different things. And I thought, well, hang about, 
if I can do these things, why can't I have a go at learning how to fly? And I had an interest in helicopters, but I, there's just no way I could afford to entertain the idea. And whilst I also do fly fixed wing as well, I thought I wanted to do something a little bit different. And so it just so happens that I live 10, 15 minutes away from an airfield called Popham, the ICAO Codes DGHP. And I remember ever since I was a kid, someone actually took me up in a motorized glider. It's once a year. Pilots generally take kids up flying. We, we do this once a year. So, and, and I know and I that. And that was my local airfield. And I went down there and there was a guy flying these gyros. And I thought, wow, this thing's looking incredible. And I just booked myself in for a trial flight. Now, I didn't, his name was Steve, great guy. Probably one of the most experienced guys in the UK. And I just, I got in this thing and he let me sit in the front. There's a Magni M16 and, and he sat in the back. It's an instructor's aircraft, the instructor in the back. And he told me kind of what to do. And I'll never forget this. We lined up on the runway, pulled the stick back and was spinning the thing up. And off we shot down the runway. And we got up in the air and you're really quite exposed. You're sort of looking out and it's like often described as a flying bathtub. Or, you know, some people say it's a flying tub. Yeah, you know, I've heard loads of different things, trust me. And we got up into the air and he just cut the throttle. And it was, have you ever been on a roller coaster ride where you're about to go over the edge and it stops and then boom, you fall. It felt like that, expecting us to fall out of the sky. But obviously we didn't fall out of the sky. And I enjoyed the flight so much. I, I said to Steve, this is absolutely fantastic. And then and there, I just knew that I had to learn how to fly gyros. And so I started my training. And where I guess most people who fly gyros in the UK are a little bit older. I don't know why. So I was slightly younger. And I guess where I used to ride motorbikes. Balance and coordination was, was pretty good. So I picked it up quite quick. And then I actually decided that I, I was going to have something just felt right about having a go at trying to fly one around the world. Um, and I'll never forget this. I said to Steve, my instructor, I said, I was kind of like halfway through my training. And I said to Steve, Steve, I'm, I'm going to have a go at flying one around the world. And, and he looked at me and he said, you better book some more lessons then, haven't you? And I'll never yeah. forget that. And I've never, I've never looked back. It was just the, the getting my license and learning how to fly was easy. I didn't find it difficult. And I think because I was really into it, it just came really quickly. I was just lucky that I picked it up. But this is where it got hard. I, I didn't have the money to buy an aircraft. Quite expensive. Certainly for me, then. And I, I was lucky because I had some credibility where I've, I've done all these different things, so I could get my foot in the door when it comes to you know approaching companies to get sponsorship and things. And I'll never forget this. I, I met a guy who said, I think what because I had this plan to try and fly around the world and speak in schools and stuff. And he said, Wow, I think that's a great idea. And so he said, I'll back you, I'll underwrite the cost of your aircraft. So I went out to Italy to Magni, where they make the aircraft and stuff. I thought, this is great. It's almost too good to be true. They, they started building an aircraft for me. And then I didn't hear from the guy for like quite a few weeks. And then six weeks later, like the aircraft was almost built. And it was time to pay the bill. 
And this guy who, who said that he was going to back me um, basically had disappeared. And I, I, goodness, to say I was in a difficult, awkward situation would be an understatement. But, and it's interesting because a couple of things happened. And I initially, I, was, I, didn't, I didn't really want to read the company up and say, I haven't got the money to pay for it because I felt so guilty. But I thought, well, I suck. Yeah, I can't. I've got to acknowledge that this has happened. And I remember I, I called up the, the guy, Luca, and I said, explain the situation. And I was really nervous and really worried about making this call. And within two minutes of being on the call, he just very calmly said in his sort of uh, Italian accent, oh, James, no worries. I can't really do the accent. But, and he, he just... He was very understanding. He said, don't worry. I understand what you're trying to do. I understand how you're trying to go about getting the money. And these things happen. We'll sell the aircraft to someone else. And it's funny because at that point, I thought, because I'm telling you, you only find out what someone's like. And you have to tell them something they don't want to hear. Uh, and, you know, that, that's when you find out what someone's really like. Because everything's easy. Everyone's great. Everyone's a nice person when they're getting what they want. And everything's going great. And the way they kind of handled it was very professional and they were very accommodating, understanding. And it was odd because uh, it made me want it even more. And so I kind of went back to the drawing board and just kept sending the business proposals out, sponsorship proposals out. And three, uh, three or four months later, I did start to get some, and you know, I managed to buy the aircraft. And I paid for it up front as well. It's okay to make mistake but you don't want to make the same mistake again so it's like it was really quite stressful just getting to the start line but people you no one will know it's not it's not something that if if an observer was watching me fly around the world you wouldn't know all the difficulties that in just getting to that start line yeah of course i i'm curious you know when you were learning right and you <laughs> of course, you're putting, you know, you're burning like four and a half gallons a flight. And so, it, you know, and you look at the tanks and there's, they hold what, 20 gallons, I guess. And you're going 75 knots. And so you must have at some point done some mental math and thought, how am I ever going to make it over the North Atlantic? Like, how am I, how are we ever going to be able to carry enough gas? So I'm, I'm curious, that must have been the first sort of technical challenge that you had to overcome. Well, okay. The technical challenges were actually pretty simple. Effectively, where a second person would sit in the back. I had a, a factory fitted second tank. So that gave, I, I know you're working gallons, I work in liters, sorry. Uh, that gave, I was probably like close to 200 liters of fuel. So that was, that's quite a lot of fuel. Um, and so that just gave me the range to, 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 to do it. it was, I had the range. And actually, I'll tell you something that aircraft flew in the UK before I left. I did a lot of deliberate long-range flights just flying up to Scotland and back and just effectively flying as far as I could and as long as I could without have, without landing just to see what it's like to fly for five or six hours. And actually the first few times I did that, it, it felt long, but it got, you, you become conditioned to it. And by the end of my flying a long five or six hour leg, it's almost no problem. You get used to it. Yeah. And I'm curious how it compared to some of your other adventures. I mean, obviously it's not as much of a physical challenge as something like, you know, rowing across the Atlantic or cycling, 
but it would seem that the mental challenge is is just as great, if not harder. So I'm I'm curious how they compare. I would say it's harder. I can tell you something. When you get in a rowing boat, life is really simple. You eat, sleep, and row. Nothing else really matters. You're in that boat. You're in that environment. And even in rough seas, you're going to be safe. And there's not really much to think about. You just do it. Uh, whereas the gyro is was different. You're, you're flying and you're running on adrenaline. I was anyway. You're running on adrenaline. And, of course, the opposite of that is, is, is you just crash out. And so I was doing these long days. And then I was getting to, to, to a hotel where I was staying. And I was so exhausted. I was knackered. And you're, you're constantly stressing and worrying about the next day. And, and I had a lot of commitments as well. I had to upload YouTube videos. So I was filming, capturing video footage. Then as soon as I landed, I'm getting to a hotel. Oh, and I want to just go to sleep because I'm pretty tired. But I'm getting out a laptop. I'm editing all the footage from that day because I've got to get the vlog out. I've got emails coming in. So I've got to look at that. I've got to check what's going on tomorrow. Where am I going tomorrow? What's the weather like? Then you've got to find some time to eat. And um, I found the workload really quite difficult. But it was quite interesting what happened because I kind of just conditioned to it. And I remember I was sort of flying up the east coast of America, you know, not far, really. I had to come back across the Atlantic, but that was like not actually that far in terms of days left from, from finishing. And you actually get used to it. And all that time I was stressing, feeling like I was tired and and, and it becomes the new normal. And whilst it wasn't physically difficult, it was mentally quite challenging and it was quite tiring, that can become a physical challenge, if that makes sense. Yeah, of course, so, sure. And, and also remember, I'm not benefiting from the benefits of exercise. So like when I was rowing, certainly when I cycled around the world, like my body was burning off calories, I had endorphins, flying around me because I was exercising every day. So you're benefiting from that. And effectively, like you feel great. You feel amazing. But I didn't get that feeling when I was flying around the world because I was just sat there in that aircraft, like buzzing away. And then in the evening, I'm just eating hotel burgers and chips and trying to eat healthy, but that kind of goes out the window quite quickly. And you start thinking, okay, I have to be careful because I can see it. I'm gaining weight. So I now need to do all this and I need to find time to go for a run in the evening. So I personally found flying around the world because I was on a schedule. I had to get back and I had commitments. I actually found it quite tiring, quite difficult. And the environment is, I think if you were in a, a nice helicopter or a nice fixed wing where you could get up high and just put the autopilot on, you're not being blasted by wind. It's not as cold. The it's not easy. It's the, the environment is a bit easier. You know, once you get up in the air, you just get your laptop out and start checking your emails and catching up and stuff. Whereas you can't can't do that in a gyro. So I guess that was added to the challenge. But compared to other projects, it's very very different. But it was actually just hard, if not harder, in in another sense. And I'll never ever forget this. A word. Someone said to me once, "Ah, oh, this is this is your flight around the world. That is going to be so easy, right? Because you have an engine. I thought that you pedaled it. So surely the fact that you have an engine, this 
This is my one. I'll never forget that. I said, no, it's not pedal power. I do need an engine. And it didn't really, it didn't make it easy. It was hard. But it was, and do you want to get really interested? The general sort of public who don't have an understanding of, of aviation, when, when you talk about aviation, they think about going to Heathrow Airport and getting on a plane. They do not think and are not, not like, they don't have the experience that we do. And they, they, light aviation doesn't mean anything to them. And so it's really only your fellow pilots, I think, really, that have been like, wow, you flew that around the world? My goodness, that's a good effort. Most people who don't understand or come from an aviation background are like, oh, right, okay. Oh, that's interesting. You flew that around the world. But sorry, you rode a boat across the Atlantic and you climbed Everest. Now, that's impressive. Tell me about that. The, the gyro, if I'm honest, is, is often or not overlooked unless people come from a flying background who actually understand it. That's what I found at home. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. So, so the, I guess, you know, speaking to the rowboat and you're alone and in the middle of the Atlantic, I mean, it's interesting that you say you're relatively safe because I was, I was watching one of your YouTube videos, the Iceland, the Falklands leg, which uh, the footage is great. It's beautiful. Obviously Iceland is beautiful and you did it all about 500 feet. So I'm curious, 500 feet, an open cockpit gyro over the North Atlantic or alone in the rowboat, what's, what's a more sort of tense, nerve-wracking situation? Well, I can tell you you're completely safe in that, that rowing boat and, and you can't fall out of the sky. You're already on the water. So you're, you're in a good place. And those rowing boats are incredibly stable and safe. Um, you could cut the thing in half and, and it will not sink. Whereas the gyro... If you are unlucky enough for the engine to stop, you, you've got problems because, yes, I had someone, I had people sort of tracking me and people knew where I was and I was equipped to, to, to deal with it in the best way that I could. I was wearing my immersion suit. I had sort of my EPIRB on me. I had my life raft under my leg. But could you really get out of that? You know, when that thing, you see, unless you've been in a situation, having been rescued off, and, and been in other situations where things have gone wrong, quite often when you find yourself in a situation that you don't expect, adrenaline just takes over. And I think you'd be quite lucky. If you, if you went down in the water, you'd be, you'd be very lucky to be able to get out of, of, of the aircraft. You've got the rotors thrashing around. Where a fixed wing could land it gently would probably be buoyant for a little while, but this thing would just sink a stone. So you've got to have to get out of that quickly. Without getting caught up, you're going to have to disconnect the helmet, get out, get your life raft out, and in freezing water, I, I don't, whilst you probably could survive, uh, you'd have to be quite lucky to survive, I think. Interesting. So if you're in the rowboat, you're safe. You are safe. I have been in a motion rowing boat in 60 knots of wind with waves as high as a, a two- or three-story building. I've been in a rowing boat that's rolled over. It just, it rolls itself. Oh my gosh. But here's the thing, Mark. You have to, you absolutely have to believe that your engine is not going to stop. And, and at the end, it's serviced every 100 hours. I had an incredible friend, an, an aircraft technician who, who did all the servicing for me. And I believed 110% that that engine wouldn't stop. I was the best prepared I could be if it did. But, um, 
believe that it wouldn't. And I think sometimes in life you you've got to believe that you're going to be okay. But 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 prepare as well. Where I was flying quite low, there's no one to talk to on the radio. You're not flying. So so in order to drown out the drone of the engine behind me, I actually listened to podcasts. So when I came back across the Atlantic, I listened to Elon Musk's audio book. And it was, uh, I just listened to that over the drone. And that that's, took me away to a different place. And there's not much to do. You know, you on heading, sitting there for five hours, just going that way. There's no one to talk to. There's no terms, There's no nothing. And so it, the time went a bit quicker. I was, however, like messing about with cameras and things, and I was sending text messages on the Garmin inReach to people. That's about it. Got to keep your mind occupied. Yeah. Oh, I would do it again. I would do it again. There was a real feeling of of like adventure and excitement because there was that risk that something could happen, and it felt it did feel pretty exciting. I have to admit. And especially when I touched down in, when I got to Iceland, or actually probably Greenland, actually was was the was the point when I thought, I think I'm going to do this, because I always really coming back across the Atlantic was a big sort of hurdle, and I was coming back in September time. You're getting close to the end of the year in terms of what I'm doing my little job, and so I there was a sense of urgency to get back, but I had to do it safely. And I was stuck in a place called a Caluit for a, for a little while, up in Baffin Island. Not a Caluit, so. Yeah, up in Baffin Island. That was a Caluit. My mind's gone blank. And it was just before I flew to Nook. Yeah, it is a Caluit. Yeah. And I, I remember I was there for like oh, just over a week. It was quite bad weather. And it was a long flight to Greenland. And I'll never forget touching down in Greenland um, and the air Greenland. All they wanted to do was buy me a beer. And at that point, I thought, okay, um, that was that. also that was the first massive underwater section. And I thought, it wasn't as bad as I thought. And here's a really interesting thing. So many times I thought to myself, I don't know if I can do this. I've bitten off more than I can But actually, everything I worried about, everything, uh, complicated radio work or difficult airspace or stopping or the brain plays you're constantly thinking why you can't do something. None of those things. Everything I worried about or was stressed about, really anxious, never happened. And I was okay. It's a really kind of wind up. Yeah. Was the North Atlantic then your your favorite portion of the trip, do you think, looking back or? Flying through America. Because I, I, I guess you know, I landed in every single state in America. I didn't just go across. And um, it, it, I know it's the best place in the world to fly. I mean, it was just incredible. And because I'd already cycled across America twice at this point. So I'd already seen a lot of America. And I've, I've got a bit of a soft spot for the country. I, I have friends there. And I've always had a really amazing time over in the US. And the, the, the crazy thing is, it's like so many different terrains. You know, one minute I'm in Las Vegas, I'm landing, it's over 100 degrees, and my iPad on my knee stops working because you get that sign, it overheats. You may have had it. And I'm like, yeah, it's hot here. Like, it's ridiculously hot. And, but then I sort of, you know, fly north and then sort of 
all goes quite mountainous. And in one minute, I'm at sort of 14,000 feet, but I'm only 500 feet above the ground. Scenery is beautiful. And then I sort of descend down into Wyoming. That was, that was lovely. And then I was up in like uh, Montana and North and South Dakota. And then it sort of went into this kind of like land of nothing, sort of, it wasn't really, it didn't look like it was farmed. It was just hundreds of miles of this sort of prairie land. There's no one around. And so you're not going to anyone. So I was, I, I was flying around like 10 feet above the ground. Just, just looking. Yes, that's kind of like what gyro is like. So it's flying very low. And you know, obviously you've got to look out power lines and be very observant. But there's nothing. And, and I had that. Hours and hours and hours, I flew hundreds of miles over nothing, and it was just amazing because you could really enjoy the scenery and what I was doing. And then, you know, I got south and down to Texas, and then went back up to Washburn, then came back down to I flew all over around the Everglades and then back up the east coast, and and then that flight around the Statue of Liberty and up the Hudson. And you know, you look at that an outsider don't don't know or you just got into flying and think, wow, how did you do that? That must be really difficult. And then I and it was actually really simple. That 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 Hudson River corridor you just made the different points and that was it. And it, it was, I think it was the fact that in the US flying is so normal and it's like driving a car. Whereas over here in the UK some people may disagree, but typically, not many people fly light aircraft in the UK. And it's it probably is still looked upon as being a you know something that's a bit more elitist, maybe. But you know, we're getting young kids into it and stuff. I think you know, we're trying to move away from that. But in America, it just wasn't that. It was so normal, and everyone flew, and everyone was so welcoming. I could have just stayed out in America for months, like just dining out and all this incredible. <laughs> Eating hamburgers and chips. Yeah, right. <laughs> it was just awesome. Absolutely yeah. awesome. And That's great. Uh, to be honest, I'd, I'd love to come back and do some more flying out there. Everything everything was just easy. No, no, nothing was a problem. Yeah, so that was awesome. But I had flying over Greenland was, was, was pretty amazing as well. It, very, very rugged. I mean, there's just nothing there. I mean, on the West Coast, very different to the East Coast. And there is some small towns. I mean, obviously, you've got Nook. There's not much there, but yeah, Greenland. And then there's a lot of Faroe Islands as well. You're flying along in the North Atlantic, all of a sudden, see these sort of rugged islands sticking up. It's It looks like an opening scene out of Jurassic Park, you know, in the film. It is lands that no one's seen. Oh, it was amazing. And all of a sudden, I get, and I hear this voice on the radio, and I'm like, yeah, clear to land. Now, at that point, I thought, I think I'm going to do it. I think I'm going to do it. But I remember, it was like my final, it was the last day before I was due to land back at Hopper. And I located the record. So I, I literally had a 20-mile flight. To back the pop to finish my flight around the world, and I took off that morning. And I was kind of like, I've got messages one from my instructor and a few other people I know saying, Listen, you haven't done it, but you land back at the 
go careful. It's 20 in the world, but you got landed back in the like, Yeah, you're right. And actually, it was raining as well. Um, but I didn't want it. It was safe enough to get back. It was just incredible memories. It's more the people I met and the experiences I had than the actual flying. The flying, if I'm after a while, it's pretty straightforward. It's quite easy. Well, James, congrats. That's an incredible achievement. And, and thanks so much for, for sharing it with us. You're totally welcome. Yeah, you're totally welcome. You know, it's, that's history now. We've got some new exciting stuff that I'm working on. I still continue to fly. And obviously, I, the book, I wrote about the book as well. It's all mental. So half of the book uh, is about the flight around the world. And the other half is actually about yeah, being rescued in, in, in the Indian Ocean when I was rowing from West Australia to Mauritius. So I taught that the half of that book is about all the failures and things that I've learned of and the mindset, hence why the book's called It's All Mental. But then it's with the flight, so hopefully it's interesting for some people. That's great. Thanks so much. David, I, I think he's an amazing guy, very humble. And I was just astounded that he said that the gyro to him was a higher risk activity than rowing solo across the Atlantic and a little boat. I just can't imagine. I can't either. And then just thinking about being in the ocean, I've seen some of the movies, you know, the, the movie, the film versions of some of these adventures, and it just looks so scary. But, you know, he tried also to, to, paddle boat around the world around the oceans too and i thought that was interesting you know what what's yeah. it, what is that like oh my gosh i don't know i just you know i get tired walking up and down the stairs i mean and this guy wants to row and paddle across the ocean it's just amazing Three thousand miles cycling around the coast of great britain now the auto gyro look, i'm going to ask you before we close today ian the auto gyro you're hard at work studying for your auto gyro check ride what is happening? Yes, I'm on the cusp. So knock on wood, by the time that people hear this, it should be done. It has been, and, and we'll talk all about it, I guess, in a future show. It's been really interesting. It's never something I, I thought I was going to do or wanted to do, but I've been really just fascinated by the machines. They are incredibly capable, very well built, these modern ones. I do think it's something everybody should try, and it's open cockpit, so it is a load of fun. And uh, yeah, we, we can definitely talk more about it. I look forward to hearing a little bit more about that, about your adventure on our next show. All right. Fingers crossed. I think that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangertalk and wherever you get your podcast via Google or Apple. All right. We'll see you next time. See you next time, Ian. Hanger Talk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly.